This is episode 52 of the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. In episode 52, we are heading back to Gaul, back to Caesar, who has just returned from his second voyage to Britain, to the devastating news as we talked about in our last episode of his daughter, Julia, having died. But that was not the only news that Caesar received. He also learned that the harvest in Gaul had failed that summer. Now, Caesar blames this failure on drought and drought alone, and it's definitely possible these things happen. They still happen today. But let's be honest here. Caesar is also partially to blame for this. He has spent the past four years, along with his Roman armies, burning Gallic crops, burning Gallic homes, killing Gauls when he get his hands on them, or enslaving them. And when you spend years burning crops and homes and killing and enslaving people of a region the agriculture of that region doesn't tend to do too well. So because of this shortage of food throughout Gaul, Caesar decides that winter to divide his legions in winter quarters spread out throughout Gaul. Typically, the legions would be put all in one area where they were near each other and could help each other. Now Caesar takes the risk because of the lack of food, because there wouldn't be enough food in Gaul or at least in any region of Gaul, to support all of the legions in one place. Instead, he decides to divide the legions and spread them out among the Gallic tribes. That way, each tribe is responsible for feeding only one or a few of the legions rather than all of them. And this is designed to alleviate the burden on any one Gallic tribe, to not make it unfair on them, and to not put a, just an impossible burden on them to feed all of Caesar's soldiers. But of course, it's also a risk to divide your troops in enemy territory, especially at a time when Caesar typically leaves Gaul. He heads to the provinces and does his governor's duties there. So Caesar's not around to supervise them. So it, it is a calculated risk on Caesar's part to divide his legions, but it is a risk nonetheless. And Caesar actually ends up waiting in Gaul far longer than he normally would. And he does this to supervise the settlement of these different legions around Gaul to make sure that they're dug in to strong, fortified winter quarters. And only when they're all dug in and they're all in place where they should be does he then leave to go to his provinces to be a governor again. Now, the story that follows of what happens when Caesar leaves is told by Caesar, but keep in mind, Caesar was not there. He was not an eyewitness to any of these things. He's not the only one that tells a story. Cassius Dio also tells it, pretty much corroborating what Caesar says with some a few differences. But just keep in mind that Caesar is not there in person. He will quote people word for word, which how he can do if he wasn't there in person, I don't know. Presumably somebody else told him exactly what the person said, but just keep it in mind. So at this point, Caesar has left Gaul. The legions are settled into their winter quarters, all spread out from each other, as we've said. And at first, everything goes well. There's no real issues at first. But, as always, in Gaul, there are troublemakers. And maybe it's unfair to call them troublemakers. These are people that are fighting for the liberation of their own people, although they often have very uh, you know, greedy personal <laughs> aims in mind that they are disguising through the cause of liberty. But even still, maybe it's unfair to call them troublemakers. But certainly from the Roman perspective, they are causing trouble. 
Now, you may remember before Caesar left for Britain on his second expedition there, he had to settle a dispute among a tribe known as the Treveri. The Treveri had had two different tribal leaders that were at odds with each other. They were not obeying Caesar's commands. They were not attending the assemblies that were mandatory. So Caesar had marched to this tribe at the head of an army, the Treveri, and he had taken the side of the leader that was most amenable to Rome and had taken sides against the one who was you know, against Roman rule. Now, Caesar hadn't punished this man too much. He had just taken hostages from the tribe. He hadn't spent time hunting him down, mainly because he wanted to get on his way to Britain and didn't want his expedition to be delayed any more than it already had been. Now, this rival leader that Caesar had not supported was a man known as Indutio Maris. And Indutio Maris, at this point in our story, is back to his old tricks. He sees the spread out legions around Gaul for the winter. He sees the disaffection in Gaul due to the lack of food for the people. And we can imagine that there's a lot of unpopularity in the idea of feeding the Roman legions in their territory when the Gallic people themselves are often hungry or even starving at this point. So Indutio Maris sees all of these things and sees that really for him, they are opportunities. So he begins stirring the pot. He goes around riling up other tribal leaders about the situation. Can you believe this, Caesar? He's making us feed all of his troops when we can't even feed our own people. This is ridiculous. Who even invited these guys into Gaul anyway, right? I don't remember inviting the Romans in. Now that's where we're going to leave Indutio Maris for now. With him going around stirring up trouble in Gaul, he's going to come back very quickly into our story. But for now, we're going to leave him there, and we're going to move on to another tribe known as the Eberones. This tribe is the essential tribe of our story today. So if there's one tribe name you remember, it's going to be the Eberones. The Eberones were a Germanic tribe that had migrated to Belgica sometime in the past, you know, long before Caesar's day. But the tribes, the Belgae, still knew the Eberones as Germans, so thought of them as Germans, even though they had lived in Belgica for quite some time. Now, the Eberones live in what is today the Ardennes Forest, or around that area. And the Eberones had two leaders, one, a man named Ambiorix, his name is worth remembering. He will be essential to our story today. And the other was Catuvolcus. Catuvolcus really plays no part in our story. Anyway, Caesar describes the Eberones as an obscure and undistinguished tribe, but they're not going to remain undistinguished for long. Now, wintering in the territory of the Eberones is the 14th Legion. This was a new legion that Caesar says he just enlisted recently from north of the Po River. So it's a 14th legion wintering among the Eberones, along with five additional cohorts, some Spanish cavalry, and some auxiliaries. In total, it's around six to 8,000 men, historian Adrian Golds are the estimates. So the 14th legion plus the five cohorts and, and everybody else get to their winter location when Caesar had set them there. They dug in, they created their fort, they made contact with the local leaders. Everything went well. Ambiorix and Catavolcus presented themselves at the Roman camp and even brought food with them to feed the Roman troops. So everything seems good. It doesn't seem like there's any mischief going on here from the Roman perspective. 
but two weeks into winter quarters and things change. You see, Indudio Morris of the Trevera, I remember the guy going around stirring the pot, has paid a visit to the Everones, and he has gotten into their leaders' heads. And so Ambiorx and Catavolcus lead an attack on the Roman camp. That is the camp with the 14th Legion in it, plus the five cohorts. And the Eberones first attacked the Roman men who were out collecting firewood. You know, as they're approaching the camp with their army, it's, it's the people outside collecting firewood. They hit first and they attack them. They then begin to gather outside the Roman camp in larger numbers and to prepare for an assault. The Roman soldiers in the camp see this, begin to arm themselves, and they gather on the rampart to man the walls of their fort. They also send out the Spanish cavalry to go engage with the Eberones cavalry, and the Spanish cavalry actually win a battle against the Eberones cavalry. And after this cavalry defeat, the Eberones then call for a parley. And they shout out to the Roman camp for someone from Rome's side to come and talk to them. That way they can work out a way to avoid this fighting. Now, the Roman camp is under the joint command of two of Caesar's legates. One is a man named Quintus Titurius Sabinus. We'll simply call him Sabinus in our story. And the other one is Lucius Arunculus Cotta. Great name. We will simply call him Cotta. So Sabinus and Cotta, these are also two names worth remembering, at least for this episode. Now, Napoleon Bonaparte, a military genius in his own right, is at one point supposed to have said, quote, better one bad general than two good ones, end quote. And what Napoleon meant by this is that it is always better to have one single mind controlling an army. That way they are either advancing or retreating or whatever the order is as one single unit rather than having two commanders who may be more skilled than the one commander that's in control of an army. But the issue with two commanders is that they may contradict each other, they may work at cross purposes, and they won't work together as one cohesive unit. So in Napoleon's mind, and I think many people in the military would agree, it is better to have one person controlling the army, even if they are an inferior general, to having two people working at cross-purposes and having the army disorganized in that way. Well, in our story today, the Roman camp has two generals, Sabinus and Cotta. They don't even have the benefit of two good generals, like Napoleon said. Cotta and Sabinus will inevitably end up butting heads throughout our story. But not yet. Now they go ahead and send two men out to meet with the Eberones and to parley with them. One of these men was a close friend of Sabinus, and he was a Roman equite, and the other was a Spaniard familiar with Ambiorix. So these two men, on behalf of the Roman camp, go to meet with Ambiorix, and Ambiorix tells them that Actually, he is obliged to Caesar for many things. Chief among these is that Caesar had returned his son and his nephew to him after they were held in chains as slaves by another tribe. And Ambiorix goes on to say that he was not attacking the Roman camp by choice, that his people and in his system of government had as much power over him as their leader as he did over them. And in this case, they refused to obey him and were going to attack the Roman camp anyway. 
And Bjorks further explains that all of Gaul has cooked up a conspiracy, which his tribe just couldn't avoid getting into or couldn't refuse. Essentially, that his neighbors had pushed him into doing this. And this conspiracy was that all of Gaul had agreed to attack Caesar's winter camps on this exact day. This way, if they attacked all of the Roman camps at once, the Roman camps, which are spread out around Gaul, would not be able to come to each other's aid. Divide and conquer is their strategy. Now, Ambiorix says that he really didn't want to be part of this plan at all. But, like he said, he couldn't refuse because of different, probably, tribal ties or different tribal politics. But now that he has attacked the Roman camp and done his best, at least in his mind, he considered his duty as done to his country. You know, he has a certain duty to his country to attack the Romans. He has done that. The attack has failed. Now he's off the hook. Now it's time for Ambiorix to consider what he owes to Caesar for all the favors that Caesar has done for him. And in this vein, Ambiorix lets the Romans in on some secrets. He tells them that a great host of Germans has been hired and had already crossed the Rhine. And now this Roman camp is not very far away from the Rhine, so that's a little bit alarming news. And he says that this great host of Germans would be upon their camp in only two days. Ambiorix goes on to say that it's up to them, the Roman leaders, whether they want to move their men from winter quarters to join up with another winter camp and to have strength with numbers before the neighboring people are aware. So presumably what he's saying here is that Ambiorix may have some control, not full control over his own people, but he can't control the neighboring people. And once the Germans come and once the neighboring tribes learn of all this, they are going to swarm down on the Romans as well. So, he's saying that it may be best for them to get out of camp and to head to one of their neighboring camps to join forces with them before all this happens and before the neighboring tribes even realize they're leaving. That's the key. Now, there are two Roman camps that are relatively close to this camp with the 14th Legion. The closest of these is somewhere between 40 and 50 miles away. That is a relatively short distance as far as Roman legions are concerned, especially Caesar's legions who are accustomed to marching long distances, but there could be many dangers along that journey. Ambiorx understands this, and he wants to set the Roman minds at ease. So he takes an oath that he will give the Romans safe passage through his territory. Now, if all of this seemed too good to be true, if... Ambiorix offering safe passage through his territory and giving them inside intel on the Gallic military strategy all seemed too good to be true. Ambiorix fully understood that. So to set the Roman mind at ease, he showed them that actually this is in his own interest too, helping them. He said that getting the Romans out of his territory would be lifting his people of the burden of feeding the Roman legionaries, so that's in his self-interest. And by doing all this, he would be returning a favor to Caesar, and therefore it would be one less favor that he owes to Caesar. Again, it's in his self-interest. So in case the Romans thought, now what is, how does Ambiorix benefit from any of this? He gave them clear examples of how he's benefiting. So the two Roman ambassadors listen to all of this and then return to the Roman camp. They then relay all this information to the co-commanders of the camp. And this is where having two commanders becomes a problem for the Romans. 
Now, both of the commanders, Kata and Sabinus, agree that it seems crazy that an obscure and little-known tribe like the Eberones should attack a Roman camp without some kind of backup. So, it seems reasonable that Ambiorx is telling the truth and that all of Gaul is actually rising up on this day to attack the Roman camps and that Germans are indeed crossing or already have crossed the Rhine. So for all of these reasons, as Caesar says in the commentaries, quote, even if these were the words of an enemy, they still thought they should not be ignored, end quote. The problem arises on what is to be done about these facts. This is where the two begin to disagree. So a council is held. And if a council is held, you can already imagine that swift action is not happening. Now, at this council, on the one side is Kata, and Kata is supported by a number of military tribunes and leading centurions, which already goes to show you, if you have the leading centurions and military tribunes on your side, you probably have the better idea, right? (laughs) So Kata's idea is that they should stay put in their camp. He says that they have no new orders from Caesar telling them that they should move, and that their winter camp, if it's correctly fortified, which it is, and different fortifications can be added, could hold off any force of Germans. After all, they had already withstood the attack of the Eberones themselves. He said that they had plenty of supplies to survive, and help could be gotten from one of the nearby camps or from Caesar himself. Finally, according to Caesar, Cotta says, "...lastly, what could be more foolish or shameful than to take advice on a matter of such importance at an enemy's prompting, end quote. Essentially what Kata's saying there is, they're not really acting of their own free will. If they took any action to leave their camp, it would be at the prompting of Ambiorx, who is a proven enemy. He's attacked their camp only that very day, right? Earlier that day, he was attacking their camp, so why would you take any action based on his prompting? Now, on the other side of the argument is Sabinus. According to Caesar, quote, Sabinus replied by protesting loudly that by the time the enemy hordes, their numbers swelled by German allies, had arrived or some disaster had occurred in the winter camps nearby, it would be too late to do anything. They had only a short time to decide, end quote. Sabinus believes that the Gauls are emboldened by Caesar's absence, the fact that Caesar is not there to command in person, and he goes on to give some more justifications about why the Gauls would be motivated to attack the Romans. In rebuttal to Cotta's point, Sabinus says that he was not, quote, paying regard to an enemy's prompting, but to the facts of the case, end quote. So essentially saying that he's not taking, you know, the prompting of Ambiorx, he's just reacting to the facts at hand as they are. Sabinus believes that the Romans' only safety is in flight, and that they could easily reach the next legionary camp without any risk. Meanwhile, he says that if all of Gaul was united and had German help, they would be wiped out. And even if this wasn't the case, even if they weren't going to be wiped out, Sabinus argues, a long siege in a winter camp would drive them to starvation. So in all of this, what what exactly is Sabinus doing? He's panicking, right? 
he doesn't really know any of these things to be true, that all of Gaul is united, that Germans are on their way. All of that information comes from Ambiorx, a proven enemy. Maybe somebody who owes Caesar many favors, but somebody who has clearly attacked their camp only earlier that day. And we all know that fear, especially when broadcast like Sabinus is doing, spreads like a disease. But Kata, his rival, backed by the centurions and the military tribunes, holds his ground and refuses to back down. And at this, at Kata's refusal to back down, Sabinus really starts to panic in a very, very public way. Sabinus begins, uh, I mean, you could take your pick of names, he begins fear-mongering, he begins demagoguing. According to Caesar, and Caesar quotes Sabinus in here, word for word, quote, Following this argument for both views, Cotta and the centurions vigorously opposed Sabinus. But he, meaning Sabinus, raised his voice so that a large number of soldiers could hear him, and said, and here Caesar quotes Sabinus directly, quote, Have it your own way if you must. I am not the man to fear the threat of death most of all among you. These soldiers will understand. If anything untoward happens, they will demand that you justify yourselves. After all, if only you would let them, the day after tomorrow they would join forces with the nearest camp and endure the hazard of war together with all the rest, instead of being isolated and exiled to perish from hunger or the sword far from reinforcements. End quote. So there we have Caesar quoting Sabinus directly. And Sabinus looks very bad. He looks very panicky. But just remember, Caesar wasn't there. He wasn't there in person to hear the speech. Now the arguing continues throughout the night. In fact, it continues until midnight. And at midnight, somehow, we're not told exactly how, Sabinus wins the argument. And Kata concedes. And at dawn the next day, the Roman army heads out with a heavy baggage train and a long column after a sleepless night spent packing and readying for the journey. What could possibly go wrong, right? When you have you know, a sleepless night behind you and a heavy baggage train and a long column, these seem like a recipe for disaster. So the Roman column begins moving and it's passing through the Eberones territory. This is the territory that... Ambiorx swore an oath that he would give them safe passage through, and inevitably the Roman army enters a ravine. And when most of the Roman column is in this ravine, the Eberones spring an ambush. The back and the front of the ravine are blocked by the Eberones, and the Romans are trapped in this narrow ravine where it's going to be very hard for them to maneuver as they normally would. And then the Eberones begin to attack from both the front and the back of the ravine. At this point, Caesar says that Sabinus began to run about anxiously and fearfully trying to organize his troops in what was probably an ineffective way. In fact, Caesar says that all presence of mind seemed to fail Sabinus at this moment. The reason Caesar gives for this, he says that Sabinus was not mentally prepared for this. He believed Ambiorx, he trusted Ambiorx, and he thought that their best solution was in flight from the camp, and he felt that Ambiorx could be trusted at his word, so he never thought an ambush was a possibility, so when it happened, he was wholly mentally unprepared and just loses it. 
Kata, on the other hand, knew that this was a, a possibility or even a probability. That's why he had argued so hard against leaving camp. Because of this, he was mentally prepared for the possibility of an ambush. So when the ambush happens, Kata begins to lead the legions, calling on the soldiers by name and fighting alongside them like a soldier himself. The Romans have an issue, though. Their column is too long. It was always too long from the second they started out, but now that they're under an ambush, it really matters that it's too long. Because of its length, Sabinus and Kata have a difficult time protecting the length of the column. So what they end up doing is they order the legionaries to abandon the baggage and to form a circle. Now Caesar says in his commentaries that this is not actually a bad strategy per se, but it caused a lot of issues. For one, it weakened the confidence of the Roman soldiers. The army would only ever be ordered to abandon all of their earthly possessions if things were desperate. So you put yourself in the shoes of an ordinary legionary. They, most times, probably don't really know whether things are desperate or not. You know, there's rumors going around among the ranks, but the, you know, most of the information is kept among the top officers, among Caesar and, and his crew. So they really don't know. They're kind of just taking orders. But when suddenly the order comes down from high up to just abandon the baggage train, then it's a clear signal to you as an ordinary soldier that things are not going well, that things must be really desperate if they're doing this. So this causes some panic among the Romans. Conversely, it also encourages the Eberones, because yes, they are there to free their territory from Roman occupation, but let's be honest, a lot of their warriors are also there to get loot. And in case they thought, well, maybe there is no loot with the Romans, maybe the Romans are willing to fight for it and it won't be worth the fight, the Romans are just giving up the loot like that, you know, <laughs> that quickly. So this is now a fight worth having, worth risking your life over, because there is plenty of loot to go around. Plus, just like the Romans thought, the Romans would not be abandoning their stuff like this unless they were desperate. But perhaps the worst thing that abandoning the baggage did is that it caused absolute chaos in the Roman ranks. You see, soldiers started just leaving their postings, leaving their position in line altogether to go to the baggage to grab out their most treasured possessions from the baggage train. Now, this may seem strange to us, but let's think about it. It's certainly possible that everything a soldier owned was within that baggage train. You know, put yourself in their position. Imagine your, your 401k, your retirement, your real estate portfolio, your spare cash, and any sentimental possessions you own are all held in one baggage train, and your commander just ordered you and all the rest of your soldiers to abandon said baggage train. If put in that position, you or I might easily find ourselves leaving our positions in the army to go try to salvage some of our earthly possessions, everything that we have. And at this point, with all this chaos, Caesar says that shouting and weeping filled the air of the Roman lines. But despite this shouting and weeping and all the chaos, still the Roman soldiers knew that their only way to get out of this was to fight. That was their only option. So they're formed up in their circle now, and cohorts from the circle begin to make sorties out from the circle, from the Roman lines, to fight the Eberones. And in doing this, they got the best of the Eberones repeatedly and killed a great number of them. 
And Bjorx, who's been watching all this and commanding his forces, though, sees this and decides to change tactics. He tells his men to start throwing projectiles at the Romans from a distance, and that if the Romans were to run out and sally out again, to run from them. The Eberones were lighter, and they had light armor, they were faster troops, they were easily able to avoid the heavy Roman infantry. And then when the Romans would get out of breath, presumably trying to chase the Eberones and head back for their circle, then the Eberones would strike from different directions and attack the Romans that way. And this new Eberones strategy is effective. The sallying out by the Romans no longer works. And yet when the Romans stay in one place and don't sally out, missiles rain down upon them. It's really a hopeless situation for the Romans. Now, the fighting had started around dawn, Caesar says, and it continues to around 2 p.m. And up to this point, the Romans had fought hard and were still in a decent position to survive this. But then, things begin to go south. Caesar tells us of the heroic ends, I mean death, of several centurions. He even mentions their names. The senior centurion, a man known as Titus Balventius. Caesar describes him as a brave and strong leader. This man had both of his thighs pierced by a javelin. That is an awful way to go. I don't think that, that would have instantly killed him, or I know it wouldn't have, but he would have been in awful pain, would have been bleeding a lot, and would have been useless to the lines. We don't know exactly how he died. Either one of the Gauls then got to him, or one of the Romans put him out of his misery, I would guess. The next man Caesar mentions is a senior centurion known as Quintus Lucanius. And Quintus Lucanius saw his son surrounded by Eberones, ran to his assistance, and died fighting courageously, trying to protect his son. It's really it's a tragic story, and Caesar doesn't say what happened to the son, but we can guess that he died as well. So it really is a tragedy. But it's also a glimpse into Roman army life that is rare. I find it amazing that both father and son were fighting in the same army at the same time. That is a rare glimpse into Roman military life that that would even be possible. Now the death of these two senior centurions bravely fighting is a blow to the morale of the Romans. And so Cotta then tries to rally the men from these blows goes around urging all the cohorts until a stone from a sling hits Kata directly in the face. Now, we don't know exactly what happened after this, whether he was knocked completely unconscious or just temporarily unconscious, but at this point he's at least dazed and confused. And after Kata gets hit in the face by this stone, Caesar says that Sabinus really begins to panic. You know, how he's kind of the sole guy in charge. Now it's all on his shoulders. And Sabinus sees Ambiorix actually at a distance, urging on his own men, the Iberones. And so Sabinus sends a messenger to Ambiorix, asking him to spare their lives. Ambiorix responds to this and says that Sabinus is welcome to parley if he chooses to. Ambiorix even says that he was hopeful of persuading his own men to give the Romans safety. Again, he's saying this whole thing where he doesn't have complete control over his troops, but he's hopeful that he can get them to listen and give the Romans safety. And he even pledges his word to Sabinus that Sabinus would be safe at their parley. 
all of this is very strange for Mambiorgs. He's still playing these mind games where there's a good cop and a bad cop. The good cop is him. The bad cop is his army. Hey, you know, I don't know why they're attacking you. They don't listen to me, you know, but I'll do my best. I think I can do good on your behalf. And Sabinus just seems to keep eating this up. So Sabinus then goes to Kata, who, remember, is wounded now. He got hit in the face of the rock, but he's back to being conscious. He may have been unconscious at one point. We're unsure. And so Sabinus tells him about his idea to go meet with the Ambiorgs and wants Kata to come with him. Kata just refuses, says that he would not approach an armed enemy. It's just a stupid idea. But Sabinus, undiscouraged by this, decides to go anyway, and he orders the military tribunes and some centurions to accompany him to this parlay. And when they arrive, Ambiorix, the leader of the Eberones, tells them to throw down their weapons. And at Sabinus's orders, they listen, they comply with this, and throw down their weapons. And negotiations begin. Ambiorix then intentionally draws out these negotiations over a period of time, and while Sabinus is distracted by the negotiations, he is gradually surrounded and killed by the Eberones. That's according to Caesar. Cassius Dio tells this story a little bit differently, a little bit more dramatically. He has Ambiorix stripping Sabinus naked before stabbing him with a javelin and saying, quote, How can such creatures as you wish to rule us who are so great? End quote giving a little bit of bravado and arrogance to Ambiorix. After this killing of Sabinus, however it happened, the Eberones then raised a great yell of triumph and renew their attack on the Roman army. Now, the death of one of their leaders, of Sabinus, at a peace talk, had really crushed the Roman morale. And the Roman ranks began to scatter and get disorganized against the new Eberones' onslaught. Cotta dies in the fighting. So do most of the Roman soldiers. It just becomes a chaotic situation, and the Roman soldiers are being picked off one by one. It's really a bloodbath for Rome. Now, some of the Roman soldiers do manage to escape this attack, though, and they make their way back to the winter camp that the Romans had originally left. The Eberones aren't having any of this, though, and they follow them right up to the camp and begin to press them on the outside of the camp. There, a standard-bearer, the man who holds the eagle for the 14th Legion, throws his eagle over the rampart walls of the camp to prevent the eagle's capture by the enemy, stands his ground, and fights to the death outside the camp. He is killed there. Despite this, a number of Roman soldiers are able to get into the camp to lock the gates and to man the walls, and they're able to hold it against the Eberones until nightfall. But... Nighttime, feeling that there was no hope of salvation from this attack, they abandoned hope and they committed suicide to a man. They probably committed suicide like this to evade capture and torture by the enemy. When, when you look at it that way, it makes a lot more sense. And we would imagine that the eagle that the man had thrown over the wall to prevent its capture was then captured by the Everones. There were, however, a few additional Romans that escaped even this disaster. Maybe they escaped the original battle somehow. And these men, via a haphazard journey through the forest, then arrived 
50 miles away at the camp of Titus Labienus, Caesar's right-hand man in Gaul, and they told him this tale of, of their being wiped out and of everything else. And this is how Caesar says he got the story and therefore is able to tell it to us. Now, in this story, there is a lot to read between the lines on. Caesar clearly throws Sabinus under the bus here. It seems he didn't feel any compunctions about blaming a dead man for this massacre. And it could be right, right? Caesar could be exactly right that Sabinus is the reason all this happened. It could have happened exactly how Caesar said. But even still, Caesar is the supreme commander of the Roman armies in Gaul. All glory goes to him if they are victorious, and all failure should be attributed to him if things don't go well. After all, Caesar chose these men to be in charge personally. Caesar divided command among them, rather than giving just one of them command. And Caesar divided his legions around Gaul. And in the end, it was one of Caesar's legionary eagles that was captured. Blaming Sabinus was an attempt to pass the buck for this humiliation and disaster to someone else. And yes, mistakes may have been made by Sabinus, but ultimately, Caesar was responsible. As historian Adrian Goldsworthy says, quote, A substantial part of his, meaning Caesar's, army had been destroyed by one of the least prestigious tribes in Gaul. It was the first time that such a thing had happened, and it challenged the illusion of Roman invincibility created by his, meaning Caesar's, constant success up to this point. End quote. Now, all of that is true, but on another note, in some ways this disaster proves just how good Caesar's leadership, at least in person, is. We've seen countless times in the Gallic Wars so far when the Roman legions have found themselves in a tight spot. And more often than not, it has been Caesar's leadership that has saved them. And of course, skeptical minds would wonder if we can really believe that Caesar was the hero of these stories when he is the one telling them. And they have a good point, right? They're not wrong in saying that. But here in our story today, the Romans found themselves in another tight spot, and they didn't have somebody leading them with the same leadership qualities as Caesar. And look what happened. They got wiped out. Sometimes in talking about Caesar, the things he does begin to look easy because he is successful so much of the time. And there's even the temptation to think that the Roman army is just so superior to the Gauls that any leader put in charge of that great army could do what Caesar's been doing. But clearly in this story, we see that that isn't the case. Even the mighty Roman army, if given an inferior leader, can be defeated. But despite all of this, that it may point to some of Caesar's better leadership qualities when he's there in person, because it's, it's a mixed bag, he did choose these guys, it's still a massive defeat for Caesar and has shattered his aura of invincibility in Gaul, and the Eberones are fully aware of this fact. Straight away, Ambiorix and his cavalry race day and night to the neighboring land of the Aduatuki, and he orders his infantry to follow behind him. Once in the land of the Aduatuki, Ambiorix tells them of his great victory over the puny Romans, and how he had smashed them at this great battle, 
and Dooley gets them riled up, and they, they then prepare for war themselves, Yaduatuki. They are so carried away with Ambiorx's victory. After that, Ambiorx races to the Nervii. This is the tribe, if you remember, that had ambushed the Romans at the Battle of Sabbath. They were gifted at running. They didn't use any cavalry. They were a very brave Belgic tribe. This is the battle where Caesar had had to pick up a shield and jump onto the front lines with his troops and fight with them. After that battle, Caesar says that they were almost entirely wiped out. But here they are, talking to Ambiorix, very much alive. And Ambiorix tells them the same story about how he had led his Eberones to wipe out this Roman force, how the Romans had stood no chance against the Gallic bravery, and the Eberones' bravery gives a wonderful, rousing speech, and then tells the Nervii that it would be easy to attack the legions that are wintering nearby them under command of Quintus Cicero next. The Nervii love this idea. Ambiorx, where do you come up with these ideas? You're brilliant, Ambiorx. How do you come up with these things? This guy's chock full of ideas. The Nervii love this idea so much that they send messengers to five additional tribes under their command and rouse all of them for war. All of these tribes now united, the Eberones, the Aduatuki, the Nervii, the five tribes under them, now united, set out with all haste to attack the unsuspecting winter camp of Quintus Cicero, brother to the great statesman and orator Marcus Tullius Cicero. In our next episode, Quintus Cicero will have to see if he can lead his troops better than Sabinus and Cotta had against a force that was even greater than the force that Sabinus and Cotta had had to face. Before we go today, I just want to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, all of our patrons. Your contributions are always appreciated, and this podcast would not be possible without you. Now, if you yourself are looking to support the March of History, but Patreon is not the way for you for whatever reason, we also have a PayPal account, which you can find a link to in any one of the summaries of any given episode, and PayPal allows you to donate just a simple dollar a show if you want. You, you can't go in there and set it to automatically do a dollar a show. You'd have to go in after each show and choose to donate a dollar. But that would go a very long way to helping the podcast pay for itself and, and to help just the podcast growing and get better and get better equipment to work with and everything else. The show will only improve if you contribute to it. And it's not a big cost. It will only be, you know, what, two to three episodes come out a month, so two to three dollars a month. You're only paying per episode, and just think about it as buying me a, a cup of coffee or a tea or something like that. That is it for today. I will talk to you on episode 53 of The March of History. <laughs>